Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Got a great episode for you today. Speaking with Charles Eisenstein. Charles Eisenstein is a public speaker, gift economy advocate, and the author of several amazing books. One of them, which I am reading right now, called The Ascent of Humanity. And he's also published uh, Sacred Economics, The More Beautiful World Our Heart Knows is Possible, great title, and Climate, A New Story, his most recent book. Charles also hosts his own podcast. I think when we had this conversation, he just got off recording uh, an episode for his show with Kelly Brogan, the renegade psychiatrist. Uh, and she's been on she's been on Joe Rogan's podcast. She's been on Chris Ryan's podcast. She's great. Um, I think I, I'd like to have her on the show as well. I, I I like to usually have people on the show that I I really know a lot of their uh, I know their work. Like I started reading Charles's book and I was watching his YouTube stuff. Uh, and listening to some of his podcast episodes, so I had a good, uh, you know, familiarized myself with a little bit of of his stuff, um, and then just kind of also like I have a little bit more um, knowledge about the general areas in which he talks about. So, but with Kelly, uh, I, I definitely would like to read. I think she's got two books out now, so I'd like to you know check out her stuff and, and have her on the show. She seems great. Um, but yeah, and Charles, like I said, he's got a great YouTube channel. So go there, subscribe to his YouTube channel, Charles Eisenstein. Charles is one of these guys who's just, he just makes sense. He just gets it. He's not, um, I, I don't get a sense that he's coming from any other place other than just kind of trying to figure out what the hell is going on. No, you know, agenda, no side, no allegiance to any kind of team or anything like that other than, you know, the the... The truth, I guess, you know, like the, the trying to figure out what, where truths are, what makes sense, uh, what stories don't serve us anymore and which ones do. And I think that he does a, he's the, he's the king of that space. He's the king of the, of the nuanced space. And I think in today's, you know, clickbait, you know, cancel culture kind of outrage mentality, people want, you know, clear black and white things they want to choose sides choose teams um so you know people that are super smart and super thoughtful and really hitting the mark uh like charles might not get you know blasted out into the mainstream i mean the mainstream is garbage so of course not but but he's great and he deserves your attention and he deserves uh to go check out his stuff because it's fantastic so go to charles eisenstein uh, his YouTube, uh, Google Charles Eisenstein, you'll find all kinds of stuff. His podcast is A New and Ancient Story, and he's just a fantastic guy. I mean, you know, when I do these podcasts, we sort of try, try and just get into, a, as you know, longtime listeners know, like we just try and get into a flow of a conversation. You know, it's not really interview format or formal in any sense, and I felt like we developed a good rapport and had a good flow. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy this show. If you like the show, you know what to do. Like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. Tell people about it. Um, and if you can leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, that helps a lot. Let's other people know that this is something worth hearing, worth talking about, uh, you know, and, and helps it bump up through the, the algorithm so people can find what we're interested in. More people can find out about it. That that would be great. It would just be great if more people could find out about what I've been talking about for the past three years with this show and really the past, you know, five, six years with being on part of the problem before this and, and the stuff that I'm passionate about. And I feel like sometimes 
it's like screaming into like a like a like an abyss you know and and then you see someone that's like you know some some stupid shit on like tiktok you know all these brain dead teens are into now and whatever you know whatever's getting all the millions of hits and all this it's all crap i mean it's just crap and you know here you have guys like charles you have guys like you know other guests that i've had on the show like myself and and other people that are really trying to communicate something with passion and purpose and meaning and it can it can feel at times like a little like we've been like i i could feel like i've been like beaten down a little bit or like defeated you know, it's like people would rather watch, you know, some 17-year-old lip sync and dance on TikTok than like learn about what's going on with humanity and reality and society and culture. And I don't know. I mean, I guess that's why we're headed in the direction we're headed. That's why we have the president that we have. That's why we have all the things that are, you know, not really serving us anymore. A lot of bullshit. We live in a world just swimming in 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 bullshit made of bullshit and requires us to participate in the in the bullshit but find a way out find a way out find a way that makes some that you know makes your soul sing all right well uh yeah if you want to go a step further support the show on patreon uh look just donate a dollar a month or two or three whatever you can do this is an independent show. I do everything myself. I don't have any partners. I don't have any associates, interns, slaves, nothing like that. It's just me. Um, and uh, yeah, it's getting a little... It's hard. I, I didn't release an episode last week because uh, I was just kind of down and I, I couldn't really get anything done. And so, But uh, yeah, if you like the show, please please help out. Anyway, let's, let's get into this conversation. Uh, fantastic speaker, author, thinker. Charles Eisenstein, everybody. Psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Information is power. But we have to seize, seize the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's kind of maybe start there, and then I mean, you know what? We we don't have to. I I was I, I'm kind of curious about like what what's kind of rattling through your brain at this moment right now. What's kind of consuming most of your time? What are you thinking about? What's uh, what's on your mind currently? Well, like right right now, I just got off a uh, conversation that I recorded with Kelly Brogan, who's a friend of mine a renegade psychiatrist and a deep ally. And we just went into such um, 
such intricate territory in the conversation. I'm still kind of buzzing from that. Um, probably I shouldn't just repeat that conversation on this conversation, but it is what's present for me. And also just the feeling of being in, in communion with such a deep ally and understanding. I'm, I'm, I, I just, again and again, I realize how important it is to have other people who remind me that I'm not crazy for deviating from consensus reality. <laughs> and, yes. You know, you've probably like you've uh, delved into the world of psychedelics. So I'm sure you've had the experience where you have a powerful trip in which you, you perceive realities and truths a thousand times beyond anything that is, that was familiar to you. And then you return, uh, to your normal consciousness and maybe more importantly to the reinforcing circumstances of that consciousness. And mm. how do you hold what you learned, what you experienced in with the medicine? How do you hold that when you come back to these reinforcing circumstances and, and your habits of thinking? How do you hold any of it? And this is where I think that, that some kind of a community of a new story is so important. And that's why I do these, these interviews. That's why I do this work because, because many of us are entering into a different reality, a different truth, a different sense of self. And we need each other to be firmly grounded there. Uh, and, and to, to take those steps and to stay in the, in the new territory. So important. I, I went through that phase several times I feel like I'm always continually going through that phase once when after college I discovered libertarian philosophy and libertarian thought and I was really diving into that and I was like oh my god wow I all these sort of things that I have felt there's actually people that are working on this so I'm not crazy that was like a, a good reaffirming you're not nuts and then again with psychedelics too and you're right this holding that information sometimes or that wisdom that knowledge that innate feeling that knowing the sense you know the felt presence of this knowing uh coming back into this world that uh it's hard to sort of contain it in the current linguistic and symbolic frameworks in which we're operating mm -hmm. in you know, and so, yeah, finding people like you, Kelly, she's amazing. I am familiar with her work and, um, you know, a lot of other people. And yeah, I, I've sort of reached a point where I'm like, you know, I, I, I want to be careful that I'm not insulating myself in this bubble of the sort of medical mainstream model of the psychedelic movement, which is great and everything, but it has limitations to its thoughts, just like anything does. So you're, you're somebody I think that really exemplifies sort of breaking out of that. And you were mentioning like, you know, Kelly's a great ally making, <laughs> reminding you that you're not crazy. Uh, what is that like to be, to be out there sort of, so to speak and really sort of, you know, in my, if I were to guess, you know, you're trying really not to attach to any one modality of, of thinking, right? Oh, I, I try to stay flexible in my thinking and, uh, and sorry, I'm just uh, pausing for a loud motor out there, but you could, yeah, no could edit it out if you need to. Yeah. Um, 
my the, the the skill that I've been cultivating is to be able to uh, uh, operate in many different languages, uh, so to speak, conceptual languages or worldviews, and to adopt each one as it is useful. Understanding that each map of reality that I apply reveals some things that are not visible from within the other maps or from the other lenses, and that are are and that each of these maps also has blind spots. A uh, topographical map doesn't show you the population centers, and a uh, geopolitical map doesn't show you the topography and, and so forth. Like each each conceptual map of the world reveals some things like libertarianism might be an example. Certain things become really clear through the lens of what is called libertarianism and other things are totally invisible. Mm-hmm. And then when you do psychedelics, one thing that can happen is that the limitations of the set of maps that you use become, become clear. Um, and you're, entering then into a state of of not knowing a state of release and then comes the search for a more comprehensive map that remedies some of the deficiencies of the ones that had seemed so revealing initially and they were like initially i'm sure that when you discovered libertarianism not that i identify as a libertarian but i'm just saying um I'm more of an anarchist, I guess, which is actually a very close cousin to a libertarian. Yeah, same. Um, yeah. But anyway, like when you first discovered it, it must have been incredibly liberating. And yeah. then the way that the human soul develops is that once what was once really liberating eventually becomes confining mm. and you, you know, want to find something bigger. And so the psych- psychedelics, I think one of the ways, um, just like with respect to libertarianism and its elevation of the sovereign individual, one thing that psychedelics can do is to reveal that what I thought of as my individual sovereign self isn't my real self and that I am totally inextricably interconnected with all other beings. And then, you know, it's not that the libertarian lens and i'm not meaning to challenge you here i don't even know if you still identify that way but no no i don't i don't Uh, my thought process has evolved uh, quite a bit yeah you're right i I like where you're going with this you know and talking about the interdependence and interbeing with uh, with the the whole of gaia right and until you've had that experience then libertarianism seems uh logically unchallengeable because of its base premises and, and those premises right. are not easily overturned through logical argumentation. And that's why if you get, you know, a libertarian and, um, you know, a, a liberal or whatever in, in, in a conversation with each other, no one is going to change their mind. That's totally a delusion that anyone is going to change their mind through force of argumentation. Mm. But then they haven't, you have an experience and it doesn't have to be a psychedelic experience, some, some experience that disrupts everything you thought was real. And then, then the beliefs can change. Yeah, I completely agree. Disrupting everything that you thought was real, such a powerful moment in an individual's life. I've had that moment several times. And 
it's a it's a it's a new opportunity for growth. It's a destructive and challenging moment, but a opportunity to rebuild. And I'm wondering, you know, you you do a podcast, a new and ancient story, and and this is a theme in your work, uh, which I like a lot. And I'm wondering, are we sort of stuck? in this or have we been stuck in this story of knowing this kind of finite point of of knowledge where sort of every generation or so or every sort of time period of of generations thinks that they uh well you know this is this is the certainty of the time this is where we know this is the trajectory and we sort of get stuck in that but like you were saying these disruptive moments they don't have to be with psychedelics but they can be other sorts of things that allow people to come together in community to connect and to have experiences that you know give you that felt sense of connection to everything it seems like to me and uh you know graham hancock says this in the way of that we've severed our connection with with nature and therefore we've been on this sort of course so i'm wondering is that is that sort of like would would you say that that would be like an accurate framework like we've we're sort of stuck in this story of knowing we need to kind of evolve to a story of not knowing or hmm. something like that well i would say that we are stuck in a story of separation and hmm. and we think that we know the basics of the way the world works we call it science and imagine that anything that doesn't fit into science that is unscientific is wrong uh, and that we know, yeah, that, how things happen in the world, uh, how life came to be, how the universe came to be. Uh, we know the nature of causality, uh, the four fundamental forces of nature, for example. We know what matter is made of. We know what a self is, what motivates a human being. Like we think that we know. And all of what we think we know, I name as a story that at its root is a story of separation, separate selves in a universe of other, in a universe that itself has no beingness. It's just a bunch of stuff out there. And then man, the master comes and imposes order and intelligence onto a world that has none inherently. And, and so it's a story also of uh, ascent of triumph over nature and, and so forth. So I, I think that, you could say that we're stuck in that story, but actually I would like to say that we're not stuck in it, that we are becoming very uncomfortable in that story because of the results that it has brought. Uh, they have not fulfilled our dreams of a technological utopia, of a scientifically ordered society where everybody is happy, where everything is fair, where where suffering is being eliminated, where things are getting better and better. It seemed that we were on track in the 50s or the 60s, but now nobody, well, maybe not nobody, but most people no longer are so confident that that everything is awesome and life is getting better and better. And each generation is going to enjoy more of the benefits, more happiness. I mean, already your generation, um, I'm assuming you're probably a bit younger than me, but even my generation we don't, we're not better off than our parents' generation uh, in America. So 
I would say that we're not stuck, that we're getting uncomfortable in that. And part of the discomfort is what's on the other side of our certainty, our certainty that is now becoming uncertain. Um, and, and like you were saying, it is there is a, a phase of not knowing that I think is necessary in order to enter a new and larger story. And as a collective, mm. as a as a as a society, and I don't just mean America. I'm talking about civilization itself. Uh, mm-hmm. We are entering. I call it the space between stories, and that's what what where you could say the place of of not knowing the things that we thought we knew. That is necessary. It's necessary to let go of what we thought we knew in order to come into a new framework of knowledge. And in as that and it's and it's not necessarily such a linear process as we knew, we discovered we didn't know and now we don't know and now we have a new knowledge. Like everything's happening at once. So part of your part right. of your being, part of your brain could be still very much anchored in the story of the world that you were educated into. And part of you is like, hold on, I've had experiences that blatantly contradict what I, what this other part of me still believes is possible and real. So, so I would say that, that many of us are in two stories at the same time. So it's a messy transition. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. As you were talking about the space between stories, I was just thinking about, you know, I spent some time living in the Amazon rainforest in Peru and uh, working with Shipibo healers down there at an ayahuasca center, um, really getting to know them and their way of life and, and their practices. And, you know, Joseph Campbell talks about the, the shaman as being the one who can, you know, walk through worlds, walk between worlds. And it seems like to me that, that we have these sort of emerging thinkers like yourself and others who are sort of, you know, these like civilizational shamans, so to speak, to sort of inform us of the old stories and, uh, you know, think about new stories. Um, that's, that's pretty cool, man. Uh, that's, 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 a that's, you know, that's, that's definitely something that we, we need, I think, to, to make sense of, of what's going on because your head could be spinning like a top. You could go down, you know, wormholes, rabbit holes of conspiracy and get lost in all kinds of propaganda bubbles. Um, yeah, I'm wondering like when people discover you or they attend your, your talks and things, what, what are some of the most common things that, that they say to you, you know? Well, um, yeah. Usually the things that people actually say to me are the more positive things. (laughs) I'm sure that, so the thing I like to hear the most is something like, thank you for putting into words my secret knowledge that I've carried Mm -hmm. for so long. Um, Thank you for reminding me of what I have always known is true. Thank you for reminding me that I'm not crazy. These, these, those responses let me know that I'm, uh, fulfilling my my purpose and role here, um, and then you know sometimes the responses are, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself, Charles, for saying such irresponsible things. Um, some people get very tweaked, uh, very upset because 
well, my, my self-justifying explanation for why they get upset is that I'm calling into question reality itself. Mm. And that's very threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Kelly yeah. and I were just talking about this and about how our, in this culture, our full maturation into adulthood is suppressed and retarded so that mm-hmm. uh, we even, you know, as physio- physiological adults, 20, 30, 40 years old, we're still often looking for uh, the authority to tell us what to believe. And mm-hmm. when that is challenged, we're really uncomfortable because um, we haven't, and I'm, I'm including myself in this too. You know, I, I keep wanting to find like the one who can tell me what is, and then each one will be disappointing, including me. Like if you're going to look at me and be like, ah, oh, finally the source of what is true and what is real, like eventually I'm going to disappoint you. And then you'll write me off. And eventually, like if, if that's, if you're looking for perfection, eventually you're going to be disappointed in everybody, including yourself. So it's much, I, I, I see my role more as um, a channel or a voice box almost for an emerging consciousness. And I express it as best I can. Uh, but obviously sometimes the information gets muddled by my own um, wounding my own, my own personal history. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, it's a good attitude to have because I mean, it seems like you're super aware and obviously, and I, you know, I was recently talking with uh, Chris Ryan about this and, and, you know, we're talking about, he's got a new book coming out called civilized to death. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling him that I'm always trying to sort of qualify things with, I don't know. And I'm, I could be wrong. And I don't, you know, I start a lot of my podcasts out with like, Hey, I'm an idiot. Like I'm a comedian. I don't know what I'm talking about, but here are my thoughts. And I don't know why I feel the need to, I I think I feel the need to do that because I really, I'm really weary of a lot of what I see in, I guess you could call it like pop culture mainstream, you know, Hey, 10 ways to unfuck yourself (laughs) or like, you know, Hey, fucking get your shit together, asshole. You know, all these like best-selling books. That would actually be a best-selling book, 10 ways to unfuck yourself. That's a really, I think it actually is a, is a book. Yeah, I think it's. I'm, it might be a book, but there's. I just. I'm like noticing this trend of like, I got the answers. Follow these ten steps. Yeah. I'm the man. Hey, sign up for my marketing course. Hey, sign up for this. And 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 you know, I th- there's like, where's the humility? Where's the humbleness? Where's like the uncertainty? Where's the grace or whatever you want to call it? And you know, Chris was saying to me, look, you, you know, if you're gonna write a book, you have to be a little. You know, you have to be a little egotistical, a little arrogant to put that message forward, you know, to kind of have some kind of container to say, I do believe in something. So I, I don't know. It's, it's messy to me because I, I, I'm always sort of just like, really? Like I'm, I'm going to stand in this ground here. Yeah. So there's a lot going on with what you're saying. Like, I'm not going to, to preface every sentence I utter with a disclaimer 
<laughs> right. Yeah, no, no, obviously. Yeah. But there are, yeah. but I think it's for me what's more important is when I feel really clear, um, then to state that with clarity and conviction. And when I don't yes. feel clear, <clears throat> excuse me, when I don't feel clear, to be transparent about that too. Otherwise, I'm pretending. I'm lying, essentially. And and I think that that lies, it's not that lies don't work and that people don't believe them, but it only they only are believable to the extent that the person being lied to participates in upholding a false reality. And mm. that is frankly a waste of time. So so yeah. I'd rather as best I can put just be clear about what I what I know. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that I actually know it, but it's that I have a feeling, a clear conviction. Um and I've done some work yeah. around it. Uh, because if there's anything yeah. worse than arrogance, it's false humility. That really is annoying. Mm. I, I, mm-hmm. I kind of there's almost something endearing about somebody who's really, really arrogant and really full of themselves because they are so <laughs> themselves. Like Donald Trump is, right. is not that you know, not that I'm really a fan of Donald Trump, but there is something kind of honest about him, even when he's telling a blatant lie. There's something endearing right, about right. how egotistical he is. You know, like kind of like <laughs> like like a three year old, you know, who's so proud of himself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Charles Eisenstein, my biggest fan, tremendous fan. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's he's something else, man. He's he's such a, you know. I've I've thought about this, and I I left that political show that I was doing right around the the election because I just I couldn't handle it anymore. I wanted to move into new spaces, but there's something so like he's just this kind of like cultural mirror mm. that has like popped up and manifested as this like collective shadow of what is going on in the, in our, in our world. At, at least that's, that's sort of my assessment of it. You know, a lot of people are like, Oh, you know, damn Trump, you know, can you believe this guy? It's like, look, like this is what, this is what people wanted. This is what people, they, they rolled the, they were like, Hey, screw it, man. Like what, we don't know what's going on. Let's mm-hmm. just like give this guy a shot and he'll probably, he'll probably win again. I mean, I don't know if it really even matters so much. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot going on behind the scenes that yeah. we don't see, or that we don't, you know, the, the story that the, the news, the news is, uh, is putting out. I mean, I haven't watched a news program in, in forever. Actually, I saw you made a YouTube video recently where you, you did like a news fast. Yeah. Right? I, I, uh, ran a uh, online course, a short one, a four, four session series called unlearning. And one of the unlearnings, one, it was a series of four fasts. And the first fast was a fast from the news. Uh, and the, the whole course was a, basically um, a invitation into this place of not knowing. So yeah, a news yeah. fast can be um, a powerful way to decondition oneself from, from, uh, things that we think that we know that we're being told all the time. Yeah. Cause uh, like you're saying, I've, you know, the news is basically a enormous propaganda operation, uh, which doesn't mm-hmm. mean that I know what is actually happening behind the scenes, but it's pretty obvious to me that something very different from what we're being told is happening behind the scenes. 
Uh, and yeah. yeah, there's something else I wanted to say about that. Um, but I can't remember. So maybe it'll probably come back to me as soon as you start talking. No problem. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Out of all the days to record today, you know, talking about the stories that are untrue that we're being fed and things like that. Oh, I remember what it was. The the day that we're. (laughs) Yeah. This. this, this, Oh, go for it. About Donald Trump. That that sometimes I get the impression that he is completely empty uh, or almost empty, empty of like authentically held opinions, empty of very much thought even, and that makes him the perfect vessel for everybody's projections so that there, there are mm. people who can, uh, contrary to all evidence that I can see, who project onto him that he's playing 4D chess with the deep state. And then there are people who project onto him that he's, you know, some evil fascist manipulator. Uh, and and like people people... He's so, and I'm not saying that any of these is true or not true, but the the way that people see him is so wildly different, uh, so variant that uh, I think that there's something really significant about that, uh, that that he's kind of the perfect projection screen for for our cultural unconscious. Yeah, that's so that's interesting because even if you extend that out to any number of things that are going on in our world today, it seems like to me that we're living in this this time of exponential change that is sort of fragmenting reality mm-hmm. bubbles all over the place and there's this like ever increasing complexity of intricate weirdness that's going on. Like, I don't know if what you're saying could have occurred to like Teddy Roosevelt or, you know, a a president of the past. It's like, there's so many, the internet of course has made, has kind of created and birthed this new thing. And maybe, maybe you can articulate it better than, than me. Yeah. There used to be this common ground that was almost universally accepted of what is true. What is a fact, uh, what is a reliable source of information? Like, like people, you know, might've been a supporter or an opponent of, uh, say Richard Nixon or John F. Kennedy, but they pretty much agreed on, on where to go to, uh, find information to resolve disagreements about what is and what is not. And that just doesn't exist anymore. People, you know, it's not just Trump. Um, it's these these the, these conspiracy theories that you have been referencing. That it's like the inter- that that on the internet live in these self reinforcing reality bubbles, and the more you go into any of those bubbles, the more confirmation you get that this bubble mm-hmm. is the truth. Until you jump out and you go to another bubble and you find the same thing. It's as if reality itself is fragmenting into, into mutually exclusive shards. And I don't know where it's going. Maybe it'll be reconstituted. <laughs> yeah. um, but 
yeah, there are just whole sectors of society who aren't speaking to each other. It's a little bit scary. Right. Yeah, it kind of is actually. Um, yeah, there, I mean, the idea of coming together with like-minded, like-hearted individuals and community and sort of, you know, reconnecting in sort of a tribal sort of way seems like a good sort mm-hmm. of thing. However, that can also be extremely dangerous too if we're, we're talking about this kind of fragmented reality bubbles because then it, then it's just a bunch of warring right. tribes. And I think, you know, you see that a lot. Like fundamentalism is increasing. Mm-hmm. You know, even with uh, something that you were talking about recently with the Amazon rainforest and the um, this sort of labeling uh, I think the other day I saw something uh, Bernie Sanders was proposing for climate change. And it seems to me everybody that I interact with just sort of puts everything to do with the earth into climate mm-hmm. change. And I don't know if the best way to handle it is this and to give the government this like monopoly power to start controlling the environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, they haven't really done a good job, yeah. you know, so far. So, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So yeah, let me, let me bring some of those pieces together. Um, sure. the most, the, the most primal way to create unity is to raise the specter of, a, of an enemy. Like you were saying, these, mm. these tribes are defined by the enemy or by the bad guy. So, we have on the internet um, this kind of this this infantile us versus them thinking all over the place, and this this way of thinking is it's a very ancient way of thinking war war mentality. I've noticed in my children even that that when they go when they're at a certain age. They naturally gravitate towards superheroes and supervillains, and Darth Vader and Lord Voldemort, and um, it's it's a foundational way of of categorizing the world, good or bad. It's the most simple way. A mature person, hopefully, if they're not stunted, as so many in our in our society are, they realize that life is not that simple, and that there's that the lens of good and bad um, simplifies and distorts what's really out there. But many, but, you know, starting with our leadership and our our foreign policy and going down to the level of, of personal relationships, the, um, the habit of seeing the world in that way. And is this a good person or is this a bad person is so strong. So it carries over, so, okay, it is the, the, the paradigm of the enemy is a special case of something more general, which is, you might call it monocausal thinking, where you find, you see any problem and you try to find the cause of the problem, because then you know what to do, then you know what to fight, you know what to uh, suppress, lock up, lock out, control, or dominate. And the problem is solved. That is the basic template of war 
or of a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. The, the, the problem is always quite simple. You know, it's the Joker, it's Lex Luthor, it's whatever, Scar in The Lion King, you know, it's, it's, there's a bad guy and, and you know what to do then. So in the realm of ecology, that way of thinking translates into making global warming or CO2, greenhouse gases, the bad guy. And we think then by, by conquering that bad guy, then all of the problems will be solved. That orientation naturally leads to authoritarian politics because you have to, there's something mm-hmm. that you have to, any, any war, basically any war mentality, any war environment is going to give birth to authoritarianism and authoritarian regimes when their power is challenged, they they raise the enemy. They start a war in order to create unity under their under their command. So, so there's a link here um, that that we're just and, and I'm not saying it's mostly for political reasons, but it's a predisposition of somebody who has grown up in a culture that is suffused in us versus them thinking to look for a cause something to go to war against. And okay, it's carbon dioxide. But I think that this is in blatant ignorance of how ecology actually works and how this planet actually works. And that's why I I wrote a book on this actually on climate change called Climate A New Story, not to like self-promote or anything here, but but the basic No, please do the basic theme was is that Earth is alive and that the health of the planet depends on the health of its organs, which are forests, water, soil, various species, the human species too. Uh, Everything on this world is alive. And if we continue to destroy the Amazon, to pollute the waters, to destroy the soil, I mean, that's maybe even more important than, than the Amazon, but what we're doing to the soil. If we continue to do this, then it won't matter if we reduce carbon emissions or not. The planet will still die of organ failure. So I'm I'm calling Mm -hmm. for a reorientation Mm -hmm. of our priorities to reflect the living planet view, which isn't to say that we shouldn't cut carbon emissions, but I don't think it's the top priority. And in fact, if we did hold sacred every place on this earth, there would be no more fracking. There would be no more offshore oil drilling. I mean, have you seen the, the results of the oil spills? You know, the, mm. the, the seabirds flopping on the beach, trying to move, you know, the, have, uh, there would be no more mountaintop removal. There'd be no more tar sands excavation, which leave these gigantic scars on the earth that you can see from outer space. I mean, everything would be different. And, and I think that really what I'm saying is that the the what we're calling the climate crisis, which I prefer to say is an ecological crisis, what we're calling the climate mm-hmm. crisis is an initiation for civilization into a profoundly different relationship to Earth. It is not an initiation into more clever uh, fuel sources. Uh, it is not an initiation into vast uh, fields of solar panels and and hydrogen economy, something like that. That is not 
and, and in order to power civilization as we know it, to keep the mines running, to keep the land ruination in place, but powered by carbon neutral fuels instead, that is not the initiation that is being offered to us. It is into deep interbeing, deep interdependency, communion with a sacred earth. And until we get that and make that transition, the crisis will continue to manifest in one form or another. It may not be global warming. Like what happens if the the skeptics, the deniers are right and we're about to enter an ice age? Does that mean that we abandon environmentalism that that like you were kind of saying to to justify or to 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 motivate every environmental policy on climate change um, that's dangerous I, in my view that is dangerous because we're mm-hmm. relying on yeah. on something less than why we're really doing this as environmentalists our where, where, where our deepest motivation is coming from, it is from love of life. It doesn't depend on whether global warming is happening or not. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so much there. It's, it's, yeah. I, and I, I'm like, yeah, this love of life. I mean, for sure. I'm, I just think of, urban and suburban environments where, you know, everything is sort of the wild aliveness of the planet that is popping through the soil is carefully inspected and watched and monitored and controlled to not go too far and manicured. And, you know, I'm thinking of this Alan Watts term and, uh, you know, that we live in this sort of, uh, ceramic, you know, view of the world where everything is just kind of ornamental. Mm -hmm. You know, we have our, our trees and we have our things and they're just kind of there that they're they're there for our aesthetic mm-hmm. pleasure rather than being there for the actual alive whole complete interdependent connected beingness that they offer us in uh in in a, in a, in, a, in an informing sort of feedback loop of emotion and thought and soul connection with this whole thing that we're in yeah and, you know, what you're talking about is, is kind of like, you know, it's true. I mean, there's so many dystopian movies and novels and things like this coming out. It's like, you know, I don't know, what is this like some kind of conditioning or is to accept, you know, human beings, we're very adaptable. We can adapt, you know, we can invent stuff to breathe underwater and, you know, we could build a dome and, you know, just keep all, you know, keep the polluted dying earth away and we'll just dome our cities off. But do we want that? Mm-hmm. Like, is that, is that what we want to adapt to? I mean, I don't want to adapt to yeah. that. That's, that's, um, uh, there's a chapter in the yeah. book. It sounds like you may have read it. Did you, did you read my climate book? I haven't oh, read wow. climate. No, I, I, I have a, a scent of well, humanity. This is like, you're yeah. thinking in, in such similar lines to me then, <clears throat> because there's a chapter in the book called the concrete world, which basically says, mm. suppose that, um, that I am wrong, that our destruction of the planet will mean our own destruction. Suppose that that idea is wrong. Suppose we actually could, replace all ecological services with technological services. 
Suppose we could live in a world that has been converted into one gigantic waste dump and strip mine where the air is unbreathable, but that's okay because we have uh, air purifiers and domed cities and air conditioning and and the temperature is unlivable, but that's okay because we have climate controlled environments and the soil is utterly toxic and ruined, but that's okay because we are growing food in hydroponic factories tended by robots with uh, meat grown in you know, animal cell cultures and vats. And Right. And I don't, I don't mean to cut you off. I just want to jump in and just say, and we consider that innovation. Yeah, vertical right? farming, like the next we, big we, thing. Yeah. Right. And so, right. And, and where nature is totally gone and to meet our aesthetic needs, we have high res digital displays of everything that's been destroyed. What if that future is possible? Is that the future we want? What if I ask in the book, what if the threat of human extinction or the collapse of civilization isn't going to save us from that future? What if we're not going to be forced into choosing a living world as opposed to a dead world, but we have to actually make the choice because that's what we want? If so, then we got to look at why have we been choosing for hundreds of years, thousands of years, we meaning the dominant civilization, why have we been choosing death and more death and more death and more death to the point where the world is so depleted now, it's still full of life and still beautiful. But compared to, in the book, I cite some of these accounts of, of early European explorers on this continent and the, the incredible richness of life that they encountered. Um, you know, today, for example, we're, we're excited if we're on the, on the seashore and we look out and we see three or four whales, but you used to be able to look out and see th thousands of whales. Like you couldn't even see to the horizon because their, their spray their, from their blowholes made a mist that covered the entire vista, that, that amount of life. So basically, yeah, my point is that if we're going to choose differently, why? What is going to make us choose differently? What do we need to know and experience that is different from the past? Because merely watching this death happen, this desert spreading, the insects declining, that hasn't made us change. So what, what, is the, what are the conditions for a new choice? And that to me, that leads to the um, realm of, of our narratives, our mythologies, our spirituality. Uh, and I think to bring it back to psychedelics, I think psychedelics have an important role in creating conditions for a different choice, that they are here to help with the initiation that I spoke about. Mm -hmm. That, that um, they change the, they help to change the story and the habits of seeing that hold the world as a dead thing. Mm. Did that happen to you? I mean, I'm curious a little bit about what your psychedelic, yeah. It did. Yeah. Uh, it definitely did. It's it, it's just expanded my my horizons. It's made there's a certain kind of 
you can't put it into into words. I can't transmit, you know, some of the ayahuasca experiences that I've had because it's so much more than just having that experience, you know, in a vacuum of of what that kind how that unfolds visually and and uh the kind of information or the feeling it's, it's a real feeling sense, you know, it's, it's sort of like being delivered wisdom and information that you can't really put into words and the community aspect, the ritual aspect, the respect, the reverence, Mm -hmm. the intentionality uh, of using certain substances, you know, in, in in that way changes everything. I mean, it changes everything. I think that aspect yeah. is often overlooked uh, that, that, you know, because we're so conditioned in this culture to, to think to, to, we're so conditioned to individualism that we then apply that to spirituality too, or to self-development. And we think that it's something that you do by yourself, you know, in a room alone, uh, having your own personal ex- experience, where in other cultures, it was not like that. Very few cultures that I know of, whether you're talking about ayahuasca or mushrooms or iboga, did it as a solitary experience. And, and this, uh, one of the, the things that is most painfully absent in the culture that we live in is the feeling of belonging the feeling of being at home mm. in the world that comes through rich relationships. These relationships have been uh, truncated or attenuated in so many ways. Um, relationships to other people have been broken through uh, uh, the economic system that for good or bad has created a fine degree of division of labor, distancing us from the people who actually make the things that we use, turning the world, the human world into a bunch of um, uh, consumers and markets and competitors and, and these abstract roles. And then also the distancing from the natural world, which we, we, so we, we, we crave that so much and need it so much, but don't know how to get it back. Because like Alan mm. Watts was, was saying, it's not that you can, nature is not, the need to be intimately connected to nature does not, is not met by treating nature as a spectacle, by just walking through the woods and looking at beautiful scenes. I mean, that there is something you get a little bit of it with that, but that doesn't compare to interacting with materiality on a daily basis with living materiality on a daily basis and being part of and a contributor, a participant in the life cycle of the plants and animals around you and, and putting your, your kinetic energy into that life cycle. Uh, and that's, mm-hmm. unless you have a garden or something like that, uh, that's an experience that most people do not have in this culture because right. we live so much in a digital world, in a world of, of representation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We live on top of the world. And when I was living with like the Shipibo people mm-hmm. in the Amazon, they really, they live in the world. Like they, they are in 
100% embedded in that world. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, putting your hands in the soil, knowing the, the plants, you know, they would do these walks. Guests would come down and they do mm-hmm. plant walks and they'd say, Oh, this is morosa. This is a certain kind of plant that does this. And it's, you know, used for these sorts of things and can help you with this, this and that. And they, they, they know it all. Right. I mean, it's that, you know, it's a, it's a pharmacy. They're, they're, you know, they're going through there and they know everything. I, I, you know, I have some plants in my home. I mean, I know a couple things, yep. but the average person, uh, you know, really isn't connected in that way. And, yeah. you know, I uh, just go, going back to talking about the, the ayahuasca experience, one of the things that was so important for me was, and I, I see this happening with a lot of people when they have profound psychedelic experiences is, you know, if you're going in with the intention of sort of healing and, um, there's a certain kind of level of catastrophe that could take place in the experience. It could mm-hmm. be frightening. It could be scary. It could be dis- disjointing and uncomfortable that, uh, I, I think that that we need to sort of magnify that onto our civilizational level. You know, we're going through a transition and it seems like to me that a lot of people don't necessarily make proactive changes on average. It's usually you wait until, you know, the IRS is banging down your door and you're like, Oh shit, I got to right. pay this, this debt or, you know, Oh, I got oh, my credit card, you know? So it's like, you know, and, and, and I had, uh, Daniel Pinchbeck on the show a couple times and, 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 you know, we're talking about this sort of like, is it going to be like, is, is that sort of the wake up call that's almost inevitable? Like, are we going to wait till collapse until people that, you know, everybody sort of goes, Oh wait. And you know, today's nine 11. I'm thinking like that day specifically was this jolting cat- catastrophe that forced everybody to come online and say, whoa, what's going on? So I'm just, I, you know, I'm looking through history too. And, you know, the, the rise and fall of how we look and we view it history as the rise and fall of empires and the expansion abroad and how they get constricting it at home and then collapse. Uh, you know, I, I don't like to go in that negative direction. I think I do see a lot of positive things that are emerging. So yeah, I'm just kind of wondering maybe um, your well, thoughts on on this sort of like transitional catastrophe <laughs> period. I think that there's a there's a push and a pull. There's a push out of the old story and a pull into the new one. So the push is what you're talking about that things are getting worse and worse. That there's one crisis after another. That that where we have been, literally and phys- figuratively too is becoming more and more uninhabitable. The response to that could be to try even harder to make it inhabitable. And I think that's kind of what happened after 9-11. You know, nothing changed. It only intensified. Um, everything mm-hmm. that gave birth to 9-11 uh, was preserved and um, uh, augmented. So... I don't think that that the push alone is enough for us to go through this transition. But there's also the pull, which takes the form of the the experiences and the visions that show us what's possible. The pretty much everything alternative or holistic is an example of a more beautiful p- future peering at us 
um, and, and revealing itself in the present. So, and psychedelics would also be part of that, showing us that there is something outside of what we take for granted as normal and real. Or it could be um, mystical experiences, spiritual experiences, or even very mundane experiences in the human realm of cooperation or forgiveness or generosity that feel in that moment like not as some exception to the rule, but as a visitation of a new rule, of a new normal, lending one the feeling, at least temporarily, that the world could be built on this. And the more experiences you have like that, or the more powerful they are, the more they lodge themselves inside of you and weaken the hold, the weaken the, the attachment to the old story. So that when that crisis moment comes, you're like, you know, I'm not going to try to patch this back together again, because I know that there's another mm -hmm. possibility. Maybe I don't know quite how to get there, but I know that it's there. I'm not going to cling on to, to this familiar world that, you know, it's becoming more and more miserable anyway. So that's the, the push. It's more and more miserable anyway, but that's not enough. There also needs to be the pull. And those of us who are, there are those of us who are working for change, who are more on the push side, and there are those of us who are more on the pull side. Some people are laying out how bad it is and how miserable it is. And then there are other people who are showcasing through their social projects, through their permaculture projects, through their, their temples, through the, their healing modalities. They're showcasing the way the world could be so that we know that there's mm -hmm. a place to go after we leave the prison that we're in. Mm. Yeah, totally. I, I love that. And yeah, I, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I, I, I used to live in New York City, I moved to Denver um, and helped with the uh, decriminalization campaign here to get the psilocybin mushrooms decriminalized and passed. It was it was a hell of a, an experience. It was a, it was mm -hmm. an amazing thing to to witness and see these people coming together, ordinary people, just kids in their spare time, college kids knocking on doors. Hey, you know, this is something that could benefit, you know, us. And I can't help but think that this is a very ripe place right now for new modes, you know, for new games to to appear, you know, sort of the the Bucky Fuller mm -hmm. quote, you know, like it, you don't fight the existing paradigm, you 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 invent a new one that 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 offers an alternative kind of a, you know what you're saying here, like an invitation to say, "Hey, look at what we can do and look at what we can build." Uh and it kind of makes that old model just obsolete. Mm -hmm. You're like, "Why would I want to go back to that?" Uh, and you know, one of the things that psychedelics do, uh, when you take them is they, they quiet the default mode network in the brain. And I can't help but think in this term of, you know, magnifying this sort of, the sort of effects that it has on the individual to quiet that default mode network, that sort of tyrant dictator that's organizing traffic of the brain, quieting that down, and then bringing new areas together, mm -hmm. creating new neural pathways and connections. 
and magnifying that on a societal level. And I, I really do f- feel that is sort of happening here. I am getting that sort of invitation to the new story emerging in this, in this area, in this specific geographical area. And I know it's happening a lot of other places yeah. too. So I keep getting called, I keep getting called uh, to Colorado, um, that whole area from Santa Fe up to uh, Boulder. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. going to be there like three or four times in the next few months. Oh, great. Excellent. Yeah, we should, we should meet up. That's, that's great. You're going to be giving some talks uh, around. Yeah. Here? Uh, well, I'm, I'm doing a, I'm, I'm going to be on a program for Gaia TV, which is in Boulder. And then I'm oh, going to yeah. be yeah, uh, sure. speaking in Santa Fe, speaking in Denver, speaking in Boulder. There's a, uh, what's it? A, uh, regeneration conference uh, at the end of October in Boulder, which is something, one of my main areas of interest right now, regenerative agriculture and regenerative living. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah. Maybe since we're nearing the end of the show, I, I, I'd love to maybe talk a little bit about that. You know, earlier on you were talking about, we, you know, we were discussing sort of what we're clear and confident uh, about putting forward. This sounds like one of those ideas. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, maybe sharing a little bit about about that. Um. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll just say a little bit about it. Uh, probably a lot of people are already familiar with it, um, but for those who aren't, regenerative agriculture is a philosophy and set of practices that basically aim to rebuild soil and the general health of the land and the water rather than extracting from it, rather than seeing soil as a mere um, tool of production, but seeing it as a living being and seeking to participate in the healing and, and, and flourishing of that living being, knowing that we are not really separate from the soil, knowing that what what benefits the soil will benefit ourselves as well. So these practices, it's becoming very well known today because it also has the potential to sequester a lot of carbon. In fact, building soil is basically putting carbon back into the soil, making the soil alive again because it has living molecules, i.e. organic molecules, i.e. carbon-containing molecules. So there is this climate connection, but I think that um, that's not the main reason that I am interested in it. Uh, for me, it's more of what I was saying before, that the soil is an organ of the planet. It's an exquisite, living, conscious, intelligent being that we can be in partnership with, that we can hold sacred and mutually celebrate life with and, and restore um, an earth that in which everybody can flourish. So I, I, on a practical level, um, I'm very interested in how healthy soil regulates the earth's water cycle and mitigates a lot of the things that we blame climate change for, like the whole doubt, mm-hmm. drought flood cycle, uh, as well as fires. These have a lot more to do with soil destruction and deforestation than they do with greenhouse gases. Uh, so anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, if, if, if you hold earth as a living being, then this is the soil is a key organ that 
that if we want Earth to stay alive, to heal, to recover, and to become more alive, we've got to put our care and love into the soil again. And that's what really regenerative agriculture is about. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's good to be going there because I think not a lot of people are, uh, you know, sort of thinking in, in these terms. And you sort of mentioned something before about the whales and the Mm -hmm. insects and this whole thing. And it's like, we, I think we need to start thinking about things in that way. Well, here again, here again, there's a push and a pull. So there's this glorious possibility of regenerative agriculture where some of the, some of the pioneering farmers who are doing it, farmers and ranchers, they're like not only healing land, seeing uh, springs that have been dry for two generations come back to life, see birds returning, wildlife returning to the area. Um, but they're also doing better financially than any of their neighbors. They're even getting better yields with much lower costs without having to use pesticides. So that's the, there's this possibility that's being showcased. And... So that's the the pull, the the carrot, and then the push or the stick is that, I don't know if you've heard that that 10% of Wisconsin's dairy farmers are going bankrupt this year. Like farmers Mm. in not just North America, but especially North America are in desperate financial conditions. Uh, It's not working for them anymore. They can't even drink the water from their wells in many cases. Um, their, Their land is ruined and their in many places, suicidal. So there's, it's exactly what I was describing earlier, where the, the um, place where we are becomes uninhabitable. And that breeds this desperation. It's almost like a birth process, where, as Stan Groff describes it, uh, in the four stages of birth, <clears throat> the first is mm-hmm. uterine bliss, And you grow and you grow. And the second stage then is confinement, where you're pushing up against the boundaries of the womb. You can't move. You want to get out, but there's no exit. And the third stage is the opening of the cervix, when labor actually begins. And in a way, this stage is, is even more physically demanding and more traumatic than stage two. But now you can at least see a destination. You can see a a light at the end of the tunnel. And you know you're moving toward something, moving toward another world. So Mm. we are now, so there are many, many people and groups and institutions that are firmly still in stage two of birth, the stage of no exit, the stage of desperate, of despair, uh, where you, where it's a definition of hell that it's totally intolerable and you have no choice but to tolerate it. It's inescapable. And it seems eternal. It seems hopeless. It seems that despair is the only logical, uh, only logical response. But we are moving now into stage three where we do, where things might even get harder than they are right now. We might be subject to these tremendous pressures bearing against us in all directions, but we have a feeling of progress. We have a feeling of, of movement and, and um, a hint, at least, that we are moving toward something. There's this light there that, that signals to us that another world is waiting for us. 
And maybe sometimes we catch glimpses, little tiny glimpses of what that world is. Glimpses that we call permaculture, glimpses that we call uh, restorative justice, or glimpses, like these little experiences that I, that I mentioned before that, that don't seem like exceptions to the rule, that seem like they are, they are a visitation of another reality. So this is, um, yeah, this is how I, one way I understand it through the metaphor of birth, uh, that, that humanity or at least civilization um, is being born now. And therefore, these moments of despair that we have personally and collectively sometimes, these are actually part of the process. But it's not permanent. We are yeah. going somewhere. Right. Yes. And it, like you were saying, it can be this tremendous pressure. In a way, you're sort of going against the grain uh, I guess maybe pun intended there too, and an agricultural mm-hmm. pun, but going against the the motion, the uh, you know the sort of trajectory of, I guess what we would call maybe this machine, you know that that sort of has been programmed to deliver things that that can't deliver anymore. You know, maybe people were happy at one point, uh, feeling that what would they, what they were able to produce and what they were able to be rewarded with in this system was okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my feeling is that when I look out at that, at this sort of kind of mainstream machine system, that it's, that it's, it produces these sort of consolation prizes, mm-hmm. you know, these sort of like fake rewards. You know, there's, there's, there's a height to it. I remember when I was working uh, for a company, I helped start with my friends in New York. Uh, you know, they would constantly say, we're like, we're changing the world. And, you know, it's this real cult startup thing. And, uh, you know, like we're doing marketing and advertising. I'm like, we're not changing the mm-hmm. world guys. But it, you know, the, they, the, I witnessed the limits of their, pleasure you know so we would work all week and then we'd go out to a club Mm -hmm. and you know spend ten thousand dollars and have some bottles and you know attractive women at the tape but that was Uh it it was like that there that was the peak you know um sorry if i'm going off on a little tangent here but I'm, i'm just kind of thinking about what you're saying and how you know these new regenerative solutions that we're getting back to the whole of the living earth uh will produce a new sort of new game rewards that will be, I think more, more real and more satisfying mm-hmm. to us and more whole and complete for the entirety oh, yeah. of, of beingness on this planet. Yeah. Right. Yeah, those, those, it, it's sort of incentivizing it, yeah. you know, is re, 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 like, like readjusting the incentive structure. Yeah, those, those party experiences, you know, those, the material, those, those are consolation prizes that, that yeah. just cannot touch the, level of joy and and aliveness that is possible for human beings um, that is waiting for us when we when we go through this transition the world is so much more beautiful in potential and and in reality actually than than we're conditioned to believe 
Yeah, yeah. definitely. hundred percent. Charles, it's been, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for, for uh, gifting me with your time. I appreciate it very much. Uh, I'd like to just sort of, uh, end the show, maybe just talking a little bit about yourself and, and what, what some things, you know, some things that you do to take care of yourself in this, in this maybe turbulent transitionary period and, uh, self care, um, you know, whatever it is, diet, meditation, exercise, uh, sort of things that you do, uh, maybe on a daily basis that some people can take away, uh, from this so that they can take these thoughts and they could take these ideas and, and kind of have them better fit into their, into their, uh, into their. Well, I'm not view. sure if, uh, I want to, you know, present my life as, as a suggestion for other people to follow because it's so unique, okay. the ways of self-care uh, yeah. I mean, I could just validate the impulse and and say that the way that we treat ourselves is practice for the way that we treat others, um, and that it's not selfish to do so because when you really get serious about self care and meeting your deep needs, you might discover that what you thought you needed and what you thought you wanted isn't really what you needed and wanted. And that the things that are doing the most harm to others as our objects of acquisition aren't even what we wanted at all. So there is a whole path there. Um, a, a, you could call it a tantric path. That, um, But, you know, I would just rather, I would just say that I trust people to take in whatever I've said that feels true to them. And I, I trust that that information will work on you and affect your, your perceptions of the world and of yourself and that new choices will be born of the new information. So I'm not going to tell people what to do, but because I don't, I don't need to. Um, in, information experiences, they, they change us into different choosers. All right. So yeah, you heard it here first, folks. Do that. Now. <laughs> Thanks, Charles. Thank you so much. Um, it, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, and where, where can people go find you? You have uh, a website, uh, charleseisenstein.org, right? And uh, anything else that you want to, you know, uh, kind of maybe encourage people to go and oh, you check know, out? They can find me on the internet. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, yeah. Let's just say that. Google Charles Eisenstein, folks. Yeah, and, and check out his books. Um, I'm going to finish reading The Ascent to Humanity. I think I'm going to move on to Climate, a new story, because we talked a bit about that, and it sounds okay. fantastic. So, yeah, thank thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, if you're in Colorado, uh, you know, uh, we should try and connect if you have the time. Uh, message me. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, take okay. care, everyone. Thanks, Peace. Mike. Hey, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Hope you guys like these podcasts and enjoy them. And if you do, please spread the podcast, share it, tell a neighbor, tell a coworker, tell a friend, tell a cat, tell a mouse, tell a dog, tell an ant, tell a firefly, tell whoever you tell, share it, spread it, like it, all that good stuff. If you if you really love the show, you want to go a step further, you really want to help us out, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts um, and go to patreon.com patreon slash mike brank and um, patreon.com slash mike brank and you can donate as little as a dollar a month two dollars a month whatever you want help support the show that way as well 
But remember, I love you guys no matter what you do. I just love that you tune in and you enjoy these podcasts. Message me. I like hearing feedback. Get in touch with me on Instagram, Mike Adelic Podcast, Mike Brank on Facebook as well. And um, thanks to our sponsors. And if you want CBD, uh, go to hempbombs.com and get 15% off all your CBD needs, I guess. And uh, just enter the code Mike15 at checkout. But thank you once again to everybody. Thanks to Danny Barnett and Galaxia for the music, the intro and the outro. I love you all. Peace.